0: your wake-up call pal go to work riddle me this but tell me no lies no pivot no pause no fed surprise we got what we got no presents no prize another 75 bips now you might surmise that four of those in a row would deal inflation a blow but it's still sticky high and it's starting to dry up spending power Maverick buzz the tower, top gun got to run. Layoffs, here they come. Mega caps under attack. Click, clack, holler back if you're still stacking stonks. The terminal rate keeps on climbing if you're still deciding whether you need to diversify. Let me tell you why. The easy money's all gone. QE, ya se fue. This tightening cycle's not over. No how, no way. But that doesn't mean there aren't returns to be earned. we got to get back to basics. Remember what we learned. Investing fundamentals, the recipe for success. Let's get back in the kitchen. On board the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. The Investopedia Express is brought to you this week in partnership with Charles Schwab. Schwab is proud to support independent financial advisors and this episode of The Express. And we're delighted to have Schwab aboard as well. We love celebrating financial advisors at Investopedia and highlighting the great work they do in educating clients and their communities each and every day. Let's dig into what's going on, and that four-week rally for the Dow hit a speed bump last week as investors tried to process the Federal Reserve's future plans for more rate hikes. The FOMC, of course, raised the federal funds rate by another three-quarters of a percent, the fourth time in a row it's done that, and that was pretty well telegraphed. But Fed Chair Powell's tone and temperature on the size and pace of future rate hikes put a chill in the markets, especially for those investors who were not wearing a sweater. I don't have any sense that we've over tightened or moved too fast. I think I think it's been good and a successful program. We we, we uh, that we've gotten this far this fast. Remember though that that uh, we, we still think there's a need for ongoing rate increases, and um, uh, we have some ground left to cover here. And. Uh, and and cover it we will. No pivot, no pause, which means the Fed's terminal rate, the level at which the Fed is expected to stop raising interest rates, is now well north of five percent. With its latest rate hike, the federal funds rate is between three and a quarter and four percent. To quote Powell, we still have a ways to go. All of that may have taken the wind out of the sails for US markets as the Dow shed 1.4% on the week while the S&P and Nasdaq fell 3.3% and 5.6% respectively to break two-week winning streaks. Worth noting though that buyers came back in on Friday and they've been doing that for the past few weeks, so maybe there's a little more conviction and support than there was back in August and September. We'll see if that sticks this week. And for everyone out there hoping that the Fed is going to suddenly change its mind and pivot its monetary policy stance and start cutting rates again, be careful what you wish for. A sudden slashing of the federal funds rate by the FOMC is usually a response to a major crisis in the economy or capital markets. And going all the way back to the 1950s, every time the Fed was forced to pivot and start slashing interest rates, deep bear markets followed. As investors, we want to be like Goldilocks when it comes to the federal funds rate. Not too hot, not too cold, just right, and that leads us to our big three for the week. Sarcally.
1: Sarcally. 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 Sarcally.
0: Sarcally. Number one on last week's show, we talked about the deterioration of market cap and influence that big tech stocks have had on the S and P 500. They went from representing more than 23 percent of the overall weight of the index to under 17 percent amid this broad-based sell-off. But through it all, Apple shares have been more resilient. Felix Salmon at Axios points out that at one point last week. Apple was worth more than Amazon, Meta, and Alphabet combined. And if we look inside the charts, and we like using Y charts for this, shares of Apple are down only about 8.5% in the past year. Compare that to the 48% drop for Amazon, the 41% drop for Alphabet, and the 73% nosedive for Meta, and the separation becomes even more stark. In a lot of ways, Apple's become somewhat of a safe haven for investors large and small over the years. In fact, if we stretch the charts back five years, Apple shares are up 220% compared to just a 64% rise for Amazon and Alphabet. Meta shares down nearly 50% in the same time frame. There's a reason Apple, along with Microsoft, are two of the most widely held stocks in ETFs, mutual funds, pension funds, and individual investor portfolios. And you know who else owns a lot of Apple stock? Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire is one of the top shareholders of Apple, owning about 6% of the shares outstanding. And number two, Those rising interest rates we've been talking about lately, well, they are taking a toll on corporate financing costs. According to some smart analysis by the Wall Street Journal using data from Fitch Ratings, North American-based companies have to come up with at least $200 billion in 2022 and 2023 to cover rising interest expenses, and those borrowing or financing costs could remain elevated for years if this high inflation remains sticky high. You wonder why mergers and acquisitions activity and IPOs have slowed to a crawl this year? blame higher financing costs. It just costs more to borrow money, and borrowing money is the fuel for the investment banking furnace. M&A activity totaled just $219 billion in September and October, down about 43% from the same period last year, according to data from Deologic. Initial public offerings dropped to $1.6 billion in October, a 95% decline from a year earlier and the lowest volume during the month since 2011. Funding of collateralized loan obligations fell 97% from last year's levels to just $1.3 billion. No one wants to borrow money at these high rates right now. That hurts big investment banks that rely on M&A activity for a good chunk of their profits. Overall, these higher borrowing costs are going to put a big strain on profit margins for companies that have a lot of debt on their books. And number three, it's here. Fidelity Investments, the largest 401k administrator by assets, began offering a Bitcoin fund to workers over the past few weeks. For Us All, which also provides 401k plans to small businesses and startups also started offering six cryptocurrencies to workers in recent weeks as well. Forrestal intends to add five more in the coming weeks, according to CNBC, but it did not disclose which coins just yet. Fidelity, for its part, opened an early access waitlist to users last Thursday morning. The service, called Fidelity Crypto, will allow investors to buy and sell Bitcoin and Ether and use custodial and trading services provided by its subsidiary, Fidelity Digital Assets. Users will be required to maintain a $1 account minimum. While trades with Fidelity Crypto will be free of commissions, The firm says it will factor in a 1% spread into every trade execution price. Don't forget, you have to report your crypto ownership to the IRS and gains are taxed depending on how long you've owned the coins or tokens you are selling. And in case you're keeping score, Bitcoin's price has fallen about 54% so far this year. Over the past three years, though, it's up 127%. Let's get set up for the week ahead. And politics will steal the spotlight here in the U.S. on Tuesday with the midterm elections. We're going to leave the predictions to the predictors. But as investors, it's worth noting that a divided government between the White House and Congress will lead to more political gridlock and a potential slowdown for some of President Biden's agenda. Historians note that the stock market has actually outperformed with a divided government over the returns generated in the years following the same party controlling the Senate, the House, and the presidency. On the economics calendar, we're going to be locked into the consumer price report for October. Economists are projecting consumer prices rose 0.7 percent from a month earlier, up from a 0.4 percent gain in September. On an annual basis, prices likely rose 8 percent from a year ago, decelerating a little bit from the 8.2 percent in September. Core inflation, which strips Those volatile food and energy costs likely rose 0.5% from a month earlier. Year over year, though, core inflation is expected to hit 6.7%, coming up from 6.6% in September and reaching a new. 40-year high. It is sticky high out there. On Friday, the University of Michigan will release the preliminary November reading of its Consumer Sentiment Index. That's a key barometer of consumer confidence here in the U.S. It may have ticked up slightly from the prior month, but it's coming up from the bottom. Sentiment hit an all-time low in June with overall pessimism surpassing that of the Great Recession in 2008 and the stagflation era of the 1970s and early 1980s. On the earnings front, We're about 85% of the way through the reporting season. And in aggregate, companies are reporting earnings that are about 1.9% above estimates, which is below the five-year average of 8.7%, according to FactSet. We're going to get results this week from widely held and followed companies, including Rivian, Disney, Roblox, Activision Blizzard, AstraZeneca, and Norwegian Cruise Lines, among others. And we're going to be keeping a close eye on China, where several regions of the country are going through another strict COVID lockdown as cases continue to rise, particularly in some of the most industrial areas. This episode of The Express is presented once again in partnership with Charles Schwab. What makes independent advisors different? The promises they can make. They promise to put the financial well-being of you and your family first to serve, not sell, to make your relationship with them one of partnership and trust, and to be a fiduciary all of the time, not just some of the time. And Charles Schwab is proud to support these independent financial advisors who are passionately dedicated to helping people achieve their goals. Learn more or locate one near you at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Expectations. We all have them, especially investors. But this year has taught us that expectations can be dangerous, especially if we continue to believe that stock and bond market returns are guaranteed, the economy will normalize, and we can continue to deploy our capital like we've done for the past 12 to 13 years, expecting the same results. News flash, we can't, but we can reposition ourselves for the new, new normal and get back on track with our investing plans as long as we have a plan. Liz Ann Saunders has been one of the top market strategists counseling investors to do this since last year. And if we paid attention, we've been able to navigate this new normal. With with less Anxiety. Lizanne is the Chief Investment Strategist and a Managing Director at Charles Schwab and a frequent guest on The Express, and she joins us from the Schwab Impact Conference. Welcome back, Lizanne. So good to see you.
1: Oh, nice to see you too. Thanks as always for having me. I love our conversations.
0: You are at Schwab's annual Impact Conference, where thousands of financial advisors and investors gather every year to get smarter insights to take back to their clients. What are advisors hearing from their clients and how is Schwab counseling them?
1: What I'm finding is that the questions that we hear advisors are getting most from clients beyond the obvious of when will the spare market end? How do we deal with an environment where we had both bond and stock total returns in negative territory in the first half of the year? Where are there opportunities? But there still seems to be very much a macro focus to the questions, big picture questions around... You know, what's the end game in terms of central bank policy? Concerns about debt? Is this 70s style inflation? So, still finding that a lot of the questions that I know that I get are not really directly market related valuation, earnings, sector. It's more big picture. And there's definitely the questions are more about concerns less about what are the opportunities?
0: I talked about expectations at the top, and we've had more than a few of them dash this year, especially as it relates to monetary policy and the Fed and some of the macro issues you just mentioned. The Fed said inflation would be transient. It's not. We expected the Fed to pivot and he's back on rate hikes. It hasn't. We expected the Fed to pause or at least say that it might. It hasn't. So what should we realistically expect as investors for the next six to 12 months?
1: First of all, you know, you use the broad collective we in those three things. I know us at Schwab personally, we're not in the pivot camp. In fact, I think the the narrative that really developed in mid-June when the market had its initial low leading to the two month rally was on this hope assumption of a pivot personally i thought that narrative made no sense because certainly at that time what was meant by pivot was the fed going from what was even then a very aggressive pace of rate hikes to rate cuts and why i thought that made no sense was that was typically wrapped with a bullish wrapper and in my mind an environment that would give a green light for the Fed to go from an aggressive hiking cycle to cutting would be one of much weaker economic growth than what we were seeing at that point and or more significant deterioration in the labor market. So I I didn't think that that story made a lot of sense. Then Powell came out in August at the Jackson Hole meeting. He pushed back on this notion of pivot and then... What's more recently, I think, fueled the market higher was the hope for a step down, you know, another term being used. That's, in essence, what was seen in the FOMC statement. But Powell had to, again, quickly come out and push back on this notion that a step down was the next step to an eventual pivot. And what I think Powell has yet to fully convince the market investors of is that, yes, maybe the speed of getting to the final stopping point, the terminal rate, will be a little slower. But what I don't think he's yet fully convinced participants of is that when they get there, they're going to stay there for a while. So I think that is yet to be digested by the market, but should be, because they're being really clear about when we get there, we're going to stay there for a while. They want to avoid the fits and starts of monetary policy. That caused the 70s to become what Volcker had to contain in the early 80s.
0: Yeah, great point. And when I say we, I mean maybe the broader we, but you have been very consistent saying we're not going back to the way things were. And this is going to be the the, the scenario, at least for the near term. And we, we know from the Fed's meeting this week, the FOMC's meeting this week, that that terminal rate could be north of 5 percent now. And we're at least a percentage point, if not more, away from that. So that means a few more rate hikes. Earnings. And
1: and Kaylee, wait, let me just say one other thing that's sort of interesting to think about. We may have spoken about this before. The prior view of this thing called a Fed put, that in the past, if markets were rioting significantly enough or market weakness was significant enough, like late 2018, the Fed would step in and they would pivot and they would change policy. And that eased pressures. But because they're now battling a 40-year high in inflation, the Fed put, as it's been called, kind of has been put to bed. But I wonder whether we now have some version of a Fed call where now the Fed and Powell has to push back on too much optimism because a strong rally in the market and and an easing in financial conditions is not what the Fed wants right now. They, They want tighter financial conditions. So he has to sort of jawbone against optimism, which is a very different environment than this sort of modern era of the Fed. And I think we have to get used to just a, a different reaction function on the part of the Fed.
0: That's such a great point. And uh, newer investors or people that are newer to investing in the last 10 to 15 years, they don't really know from that. We haven't they haven't experienced this. You got to go back again to the Volcker Fed. You got to go back ways to to feel that and it creates a different return environment for different asset classes. Let's get to earnings for a sec, because you've written about this. You've written about the labor market as well. And it's been one of the few so-called sturdy legs of the economic stool in the past couple of years. And it's one of the reasons the Fed and others say we're not in a recession. And we we wouldn't know it if we were until we have already been through it. But you see cracks in the labor market that could turn into real chasms. What are they, Lizanne?
1: Yeah. So I think there are some of the popular headline labor market indicators the jobs report that we get every fourth friday the first two breathlessly reported headlines that come out of that at 8:30 a.m. eastern time is the payroll number you know jobs gained or lost in the prior month and the unemployment rate those are the metrics that are often used to describe the health of the labor market but there are things that happen well before a change in payrolls and a change in the unemployment rate. In fact, the unemployment rate is not only a lagging indicator, it's one of the most lagging indicators. So you have to you have to kind of go back in the process to see where things start to deteriorate. Ultimately, we'll get to headline numbers like payrolls and uh, the unemployment rate. So layoff announcements. It's one of the first things. Actually, and there's something even that precedes that, which is hiring freezes. Great increase in anecdotal evidence of hiring freezes and more commentary about that during earnings season. doesn't always tend to be a formal announcement, but you can pick up snippets from what companies are saying. Then there are the layoff announcements, and Challenger Gray is the kind of keeper of that data. I think it's four months in a row now, or four out of the last five months, we're in double digit gain territory year over year. In this case, again, is not a good thing. <laughs> it's higher layoff announcements. Of course, the layoff announcement comes before the layoffs. Then once there's layoffs, then it hits unemployment claims. So you have to understand how things filter through. Now, it may be a unique environment. and I think it is. Companies are less quick maybe to ramp up the layoffs because we were in such a tight labor market and it was so hard to find talent that... Ultimately, we may find that the job losses in this downturn, recession, whatever we're going to call it, might not be as significant. However, one thing you can track is hours worked. So if you're a company that employs hourly workers and demand is slowing and business is slowing, if you don't want to lay people off, you shrink the number of hours that are needed. So even though wage growth is up, if you look at weekly earnings... Those have started to come down because the hours part of the equation has started to shrink. So they're cracks. They're not suggestive of a massive implosion coming in the labor market. And then the household survey from which the unemployment rate is calculated, that has picked up the fact that there's multiple job holders now. For uh, There's more part-time work for economic reasons where there's been a decline in full-time work. So it's just peeling a layer or two back of the you know labor market onion and you just see that there's a, a you know there's a few dark spots that bear watching that should eventually and here's another thing the fed wants to weaken the labor market so that's they're on a mission to do that they'd love to perfectly thread the needle and just squash job openings without causing an increase in the unemployment rate but Even Powell concedes that the unemployment rate needs to go up for them to accomplish their goal.
0: Yeah, which seems counterintuitive because one of the Fed's mandates is maximum employment. And we're kind of there, right, between three and four percent unemployment. But again, to your point on all of this, the headline numbers are in the rearview mirror. You have to look at the private payrolls. You have to look like what's happening in terms of hours worked, in terms of wages and we're in a such a particular and peculiar spot right now. Let's get to the investment side of this. Retirees and pre-retirees, they felt pain every which way this year. The 60-40 portfolio is having its worst year in history. But now, given rate hikes, there are finally returns in fixed income, money markets, CDs, muni bonds. It's good old-fashioned tortoise versus hare type of investing where slow and steady makes a lot of sense right now, Lizanne. How important is it for older investors to re-embrace that strategy if they veered from it?
1: You know, Kayla, what's interesting is I think back to two years ago when all we would hear was, I need yield. I want to get yield. Where can I go for, for yield? I'm getting nothing even out you know, to the 10-year treasury, which at its low had less than a half a percent. And then when you got the initial surge in inflation, of course, and you subtracted that from nominal yields, you were deep in negative territory. But now even a three-month treasury bill yields more than 4%. Yes, the process of rates going up meant that bond prices were going down. So the total return got slammed in the first half of the year, but it's now bred a better yield environment, and more opportunities. Uh, more opportunities to be maybe active on the duration front and maybe lengthen duration a little bit, lock in those higher yields for a more extended period of time. For many, especially retirees that are income-oriented, they were forced out the risk spectrum into other asset classes, uh, including equities, in order to get that you know, now they don't have to go out that risk spectrum. And that, again, knowing that people have gone through the pain of the total return losses as we sit here now and look forward, I think there are opportunities. I think there are opportunities for a more active approach, both on the fixed income side and the equity side of, of portfolios. and And turmoil and volatility and weak total returns do breed opportunity at some point. Uh, It's just we have to get in that that mindset.
0: Right. And and just sticking to the benchmarks and just letting it ride on growth if that was your strategy just doesn't work right now and it's not going to work so active is really important advice is really important the plan is really important all right we talked about pre-retirees and retirees again for younger investors this may be their first bear market this may be the first time they've actually seen the economy weaken like this what do you advise them you know the there are some bargains out there so to speak but that doesn't mean necessarily you should buy everything that's on sale
1: right you know we often make generalizations and i get asked for advice based on just age. And it's, yes, it's a component, ostensibly older, closer to, or in retirement, lower risk tolerance, greater need for for income, vice versa on the young end of the spectrum. But the reality is that just because you're young doesn't necessarily mean you're more tolerant of risk. You can be 25 years old, but if you experience your first bear market and you go into panic mode when you see the impact it's having on your 401k or your IRA and you bail. I don't care how young you are, you are not a risk tolerant investor. So, I think one of the things that a volatile period sometimes teaches us, or what a bear market teaches us, is whether there's a wide or narrow gap between our financial risk tolerance, the stuff that's on paper, it's part of our plan and our emotional risk tolerance. So that's the first thing we have to do. But for younger investors that are going through this, the the stock market's a weird market in that it's the only market that I know of that when its products go on deep sale, deep discount, we run away. Now, if your goal is to get in and get out, and make those decisions based on trying to time tops and bottoms in the market, fool's errand. You will definitely be on the losing end of that proposition because get in and get out, all or nothing, that's just gambling on moments in time. And investing, to your point, always should be a disciplined process over time. But bear markets do provide opportunity. Things get cheaper. Leadership shifts change. And along the way... We can take advantage of the discipline of rebalancing. Rebalancing is such a beautiful discipline because it forces us to add low, trim high, go against what you know fear and greed would tend to drive us uh, to do. So, I always see bear markets as an opportunity without trying to call precisely tops and bottoms in markets, not just the equity market, but all markets. It, they're processes. They're not moments in time. You have the rare March 23rd, 2020 bottom in the COVID bear market that truly was a V. But as you know, that's not what they normally look like. And you know, at the recent low, the S&P was 25% cheaper, lower than it was at the beginning of the the year. And there's a way to take advantage of that without feeling you need to call the exact bottom or the exact top.
0: Which is why you say and other strategists say it's the time in the market, not timing in the market, because none of us are going to get it right. You may get it right once, but you never know when to get back in or get out. Keep at it. And a great time to rebalance dollar cost average. People say, don't look at your 401k. No, look at it. Make sure you know what you own. Rebalance,
1: but panic is not a strategy. Panic is not a strategy. Nor is greed, by the way. Nor is greed. <laughs> Panic's not a strategy.
0: Planning is a strategy, and you guys are so good about that. So, what are the two or three things, or the or one important thing that you're looking at that you think is going to be very important right now? That's going to help you sort of understand where things are headed right now. What are the indicators that Lizanne looks at?
1: So, I think the sentiment environment, which at extremes, you know, tends to act as a contrarian indicator. All else equal, but typically needing a catalyst of some sort. Most sentiment indicators have recently gotten to what I would call sort of the washout phase. The only rub is that some of the behavioral measures, fund flows, household equity exposure, haven't quite matched that same washout. You know, at the June lows, at the mid-October lows, you had record low bullishness in measures like American Association of Individual Investors, but you didn't see deep outflows out of equity funds. You didn't see a massive spike in the put call ratio. So I do think that maybe we didn't quite get to that. And I probably used this term uh, with you before, a very technical term, the puke phase. But that said, a lot of where the most speculative money had gone in the latter stages of the bull market did go through the puke phase. SPACs, the meme stocks, crypto, heavily shorted, a lot of those narrative driven. So when people say, don't we still need to get that complete washout? And I say, well, we did in many of those areas where drawdowns, peak trough were in the 70, 80, 90%. So that, Maybe a bit of a healthy underpinning. So, in general, I think you can check the sentiment box as a, a a decent positive. This most recent retest and move through below the June lows, the breadth under the surface actually improved. fewer percentage lower percentage of stocks were hitting new lows, even though the indexes were that's called a positive divergence. That's what you tend to see in the process toward the end. But from a macro perspective, what I think is still ahead of us is I think we need to see stabilization in the dollar, stabilization in yields. They've been swinging wildly. I think we need stabilization in forward earnings estimates. I think those still have to come down more than they have and then see a stabilization and a stabilization in housing. Now, notice I said stabilization, not a bottom and then a significant improvement. You know, the market operates off rate of change when things stop getting worse and start getting better. So that's why I put the verbal emphasis on stabilization. So that, from a more macro perspective, is uh, what I'm looking for, some of the indicators of, okay, The worst is now probably mostly in the rearview mirror.
0: Those are great. And we're going to link to places where folks can find those so they can follow along. Well, Lizanne, we know you're a rocker. You love rock music. You always have a good song of the moment. What's your song right now for investors in this market environment? What's in your head?
1: There's one that popped into my head in the summer when this narrative around a pivot, and it was Aerosmith's Dream On. (laughs) It's not a pivot coming anytime soon. So I'd say that one is still... Maybe be appropriate.
0: That is so good and so classic. And I can just see Steven Tyler right now. All right. You know, we're a site built on our investing terms. That's how we were born. That was our foundation. What's the most important investing term right now that's in your mind that you think investors should be thinking about?
1: You know, I touched on already equal weighted. I think the average stock, instead of the small cohort of leadership names, I think we're in a leadership shift from the big cap kind of techy oriented areas to the average stock. So equal weight. Fundamentals matter again.
0: Yeah. Fundamentals matter. Great term. We love that. And we love your advice. Liz Ann Saunders, the chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab. Thank you so much for rejoining the Express. It's always great to talk to you.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, Caleb.
0: It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Raul in Lisbon. I just spent a few days there last week at Web Summit and what an incredible conference in such a beautiful city. Raul suggests regressive tax this week, and we like that term given the madness around Powerball here in the United States. At last check, the Powerball payout was $1.9 billion. That's right. billion. Your chances of winning, just one in 292,201,338. Lotteries, especially state lotteries, are often considered regressive taxes. Well, what does that even mean? Well, according to my favorite website, a regressive tax is a type of tax that is assessed regardless of income in which low and high income earners pay the same dollar amount. The kind of tax is a bigger burden on low income earners than high income earners for whom the same dollar amount equates to a much larger percentage of total income earned. A regressive system differs from a progressive system in which higher earners pay a higher percentage of income tax than lower earners. So what does this have to do with the lottery and Powerball? Well, research has shown that poor people play the lotto more often, spend a higher percentage of their income on it, and are about 25% more likely to gamble for money rather than for fun. One recent survey found that players making less than $10,000 annually spend $597 on average on lotto tickets every year, or about 6% of their income. So while no one is compelled to play the lottery or the Powerball, states spend hundreds of millions of dollars marketing the lottery to us every single year, a dollar and a dream. Since it costs everyone the same amount to bet on that dream, it is considered to be a regressive tax. Good suggestion, Raul. I already gave you a pair of socks in person last week, and I'd like to see you sporting those on Pink Street in lovely Lisbon. We're going to let Burton Malkiel take us out this week. The legendary investor and economist wrote a random walk down Wall Street nearly 50 years ago. With millions of copies sold, it's one of the most important books on investing, and as you can imagine, the randomness of stock markets. But it's about much more than that. It's about the power of index investing, investing broadly in how the individual investor can find advantages that give us the opportunity to build wealth through the stock market. Here's Malkiel in a 2004 interview with Kevin Hoda explaining what makes the market so random. It would be very easy for us as investors if we thought, gee, the stock market went up yesterday, it's going to go up today. It went up last week, it's going to go up this week. The idea of a random walk is that The stock market doesn't have a memory where it went last day, last hour, last week, last month doesn't tell you anything about where it's going to go in the future. We're going to link to that full interview on YouTube. And if you haven't read the book yet, give yourself that gift. Special thanks to Lizanne Saunders for coming back on the Express. It's always so good to get her perspective. We're going to post a transcript to our conversation on investopedia.com and we'll also link to Lizanne's latest blog post on schwab.com. You can find those in the show notes. I also want to give a big shout out to Troy and Rashad and the Earn Your Leisure team for having me out to London for InvestFest Europe last week. They packed the house at the historical Royal Albert Hall and made history once again. We're going to link to their YouTube channel for highlights from the show as well, but I can't thank them enough for including me, and investopedia in the show let's lean into the turns this week and we'll talk again a little further
1: on down the line